0: We're going to continue our study, so we're going to read starting in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, and this is the question, But who do you say that I am? We've talked about the fact that everybody has some kind of opinion of who Jesus is, but it's not their opinion that matters. It's who is he to you? And it's not just who is he on Sunday when you're asked the question. It's who is he in your life? Who is he in the middle of the night when you wake up in pain? Who is he in the middle of those difficult business decisions that you've got to make when everybody around you is telling you, look, everybody does it. That's okay. Come on. It's what, who's going to notice it? Who is he to you then? Who is he to you when you've run out of every possible resource and it feels like the end is right there? Who is he to you then? Who is he to you? But who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Peter answers and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. We're focusing in on this question in verse 15 and 16, and who do you say that I am? And Peter's answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then says to him, you didn't figure that out, but my Father who is in heaven. And what we've seen is that's God's answer to the question. Peter's or the disciples have shared, you know, who other people think he is. But the answer that God gives is two things. You are the Christ, He is the Christ, and He's the Son of the Living God. We've talked about what He didn't say. He didn't say you're the Savior, although He is. He didn't say you're the Redeemer, although He is. He didn't say you're the Healer, although He is. It's not that there's nothing wrong with those things. That's what it, He does those things, but that's what He does. That's not who He is. Who I am is a child of God. Pastor is a, is a title that describes an office I stand in. But it's not who I am. It better not be who I am. I better be more than that. So you're not a, a, you know, a, a car mechanic, a doctor lawyer. When I was a lawyer, I had to get over the fact that that was not my identity. So many lawyers I worked with, that was their identity. And the problem is when they come to the end and They don't lawyer anymore. They've lost their identity. That's a lot of the crisis that men go through at a later stage in life is because their identity is tied with what they do. Women go through that challenge because their identity becomes, I'm a mother. These children are mine. That's my identity. The problem is when their little identities grow up and move away, (laughs) your identity moves with them. And what are you left with? Your identity is not what you do. It's who you are. You need to ask yourself that question. Who am I? Who do I think I am? Who do I know? I Who do I believe I am? I can tell you the answer for a Christian. You are a child of God, just like his answer is. You are a son, a daughter of the living God. And we looked at the Christ means that he was a sent one. You're a sent one also. You're not the Christ, but you're a sent one. It means the anointed one. You've been anointed to do something for God. So your, your, your identity is you are a child of the living God, And you've been sent by God with a purpose. So this answer we're looking at is also our answer. So God's answer to the question is these two things. And we're looking at the second part of it now. What does it mean that He is the Son of the living God? And we've talked about the fact, although we have only studied one of them, that there's three things that that means to us. There may be more, but there's three we're going to look at. The first is the one we're still looking at, the fact that God gave His Son. could have given an angel could have given Gabriel. He, could have, he sent Gabriel to do some things. He could have picked something up, but he chose his only begotten son at that point, and he sent him <clears throat> to be a gift to you and to me. What does that mean? Well, the first aspect of what that means that we're looking at is in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what that tells us is it shows us not just that God loves us, but how much God loves us. And that's what we've been looking at. For God so loved the world. So means it's a measure of how much God loves you that He sent His only begotten Son. We looked over in in Ephesians chapter 2. Where, where verse four says says because of and because of the great love with which God loved us, He made us alive together with Christ, and goes on and talks about our salvation. The, because of the word "because of" means why God did it. Why did God send His Son to save you? Because of how much He loves you. We looked at the Amplified version of that, which says, "In order to satisfy the great and intense love with which God loves me, loves us, He sent His only Son for you." then last time we looked over in in Ephesians chapter 3, and we began to look that, we began to talk now about, and we're going to continue today, to talk about how to receive that love. Because it's one thing for God to love us with everything He has and is. It's another thing to receive that love. Because it takes both. If I were to give a gift to you, suppose I were to take out my wallet and say, Brendan, I want to give my, suppose... Suppose, hypothetical, I were to take out my wallet and say, Brendan, I just want to make a gift of it to you. That's all I can do is to extend it. That's as far as I can go. He has to choose to receive that gift in order to receive the benefit of it. And the same is true of God's love. And so what we looked at last time as we went into Ephesians chapter 3 and we saw that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, having gone through and discussed in chapter 1 what God had done for them. In chapter 2, what God had done for them by raising them from the dead, spiritually dead, and making them alive together with Christ. All the things God's done for them, then he comes to the end of that discussion with this prayer. Father, strengthen them by your Spirit in their inner man that Christ may be formed in them by faith that being rooted and grounded in love. They may come to know with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding so that they may be filled up with all of his fullness. What Paul is saying to us in the Spirit of God through Paul is in order for us to grow and be healthy as Christians, we have to be rooted and grounded in his love for us. So much of the dysfunction in the body of Christ, so much of the struggles that I believe that I've had to overcome, and I'm still overcoming in some areas. So much of the struggles that you're overcoming and dealing with, and so much of the challenges that we're within the church is because we're not rooted and grounded in his love for us. Now there's some people just with bad attitudes, bad hearts, and they're gonna cause trouble wherever they go. But most most of the trouble that people bring into your life, believers, is because they're suffering. You've heard the expression, hurting people hurt people? So most of the time it's because they're insecure. Most of the time it's because they're hurting, and therefore they're going to turn around and hurt somebody else, and you may be one of the ones in the line of fire. Why? Because they're not rooted and grounded in His love for them. Therefore, the fruit that they produce is not healthy fruit. And that may be true in your lives. So I believe that God wants us to go back and look at what we're rooted in, and find out whether are we really rooted in His love, because in order to be, because then once you're rooted in His love, He wants to cause you to grow in the revelation of the extent of that love, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding, which means it's a love that's beyond your mind's ability to grasp, but it can be communicated to you by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're looking at. So what we want to begin to talk about today is what your part of that is. Just as if I were to reach in my pocket and pull out my wallet, I can't get it out because of the, because the microphone packs there, back. but if I could get it out (laughs) and hand it to you, he'd have to get up out of his seat and come and receive that gift. So we're going to begin to look at what part do we have to play not in making God love us. You can't do anything to make God love you more, and you can't do anything to make Him love you less. He doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because that's His nature. He can't help but love you. And so what we're going to talk about today, begin to talk about today, is not to cause God to love you, Is to receive something He's already given you. Because one of the things we're going to learn is just because you're not experiencing His love doesn't mean He doesn't love you. And the first thing we need to understand is that we're not going to learn to do these things that we're going to begin to learn today so that God will love us. This is to help you and me receive a gift He's already given. In fact, the Bible tells us in the beginning of Ephesians, He gave it to you before the foundation Of the world. God gave his love to you before you were a twinkling in your parents' eye. Before you were a twinkle in his eye, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye. The Bible says he longed for you to come. He was looking for you. For the moment you were born, he was waiting for that moment. You are his prize child. And the amazing thing of God's love is. His love is so extensive, so universal that he's able to love you today as if you were the only child he had and give that same extent of love to everybody. Wow. But how come we're not enjoying it? How come we're not experiencing it? That's what we're going to begin to learn to do. So to do that, I want you to go with me to to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now, the first chapter of James really talks about a number of things. It starts talking about, you know, handling trials and tests. And and some of us are going through trials and tests. Many people are going through trials and tests right now. But verse 5 begins to talk about an aspect of that, and then it kind of branches into something which is broader. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, so he's talking about something you lack, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Isn't that simple? You just ask God. Later on, he says, you're struggling with things. You fight among yourselves because you don't have what you need, so you're trying to take it from one another. And you have not because you ask not. Isn't that simple? There are many places where we studied this last year or so on a Wednesday night where God says, ask, ask, ask. So James says, hey, don't, the reason you don't have some things is you haven't asked him. And then he says, well, another reason is you've asked, but you've asked with the wrong motives. So then you may spend it on your pleasure, which doesn't mean God doesn't want you to enjoy things. What it means there is that you're, you know, you're, you're basing your security and your well-being on your pleasures. And pleasures, instead of enhancing your life and enjoying your life, are what you're hiding in and, 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 and basing your life on. Many of you lacks wisdom. Let him ask of God. Look at this, who gives to all. Really simple here. Ask, and the one you're asking gives to all liberally, generously. God is a generous God. Sometime I want to just do a study and, 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 and do a teaching on just God's extravagance. There's words in the New Testament, especially the New Testament, about God's character how He's extravagant, here's a word liberally. John 10:10 10, 10 says, "The thief comes, but to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly." That word in Greek means a superabundance, not an abundance. Abundance is more than you need. Superabundance is you go multiples of how much of, of over what you need. Ephesians chapter 1, and some of the translations use the word, and he's lavished his grace upon us. He doesn't just give you what you need. God's not, just hold, God's not holding anything back. Romans 8.32, you've heard me quote it many times. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. In other words, if he, didn't, if he, if he gave his own son, how will he not also, together with him, freely give us Everything else he's got, freely, lavishes, superabundance. For my God will do, this in Ephesians chapter 3, my God will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think, according to the power that's at work in us. God answers your prayers liberally, generously, because his nature is to be generous. He is generous, otherwise none of us would be here. because none of you are here because you deserved it, including me. So we're all here by His generosity and His grace. We breathe every day by His generosity and grace. Who gives to all. Now how many does all include? Everybody. So you're one of the all. All means it includes you. So we're talking about you. God gives to you Liberally. Say that. God gives to me liberally. Say it again. God gives to me liberally when I ask. And it will be given to Him. I've been listening to some old tapes of some teachers that we had in Bible school and... Makes a statement about the Bible. It was just, it, you ever have a statement just kind of hit you and sort of rock you and you want to think about this because it's there's depth in that. He says the Bible is fact. God's promises are facts. They're facts. Facts are something that exists. One plus one is two. That's a fact. I don't care what new math, old it, It's a fact. Two plus two is. We're gonna to have to do basic math here. <laughs> it was not a trick question, and it wasn't particularly hard. <laughs> Let's try that again. Two plus two is. See, so, you now you'll learn something today. <laughs> That's a fact. It's not an opinion, it's not a guess. And facts mean I don't have to hope it's true. I know it's true. Just like my first name is John. That's a fact. I've got a birth certificate that proves it. It is a fact. And this word says, who gives to all liberally, ask, to ask of God, who gives to all, it all liberally, and it will be given. Ask, and it will be given. That's a fact. Okay, pastor, but it's not been a fact in my life yet. Ah, oh, let's keep on reading. Let's keep on reading. It's not the end of the chapter. But let him ask in faith. Now, I'm in faith. Well, I just keep going. With no, no, no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Look at this. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Uh, Stop a second because this is an important point. I am going to get it out. (laughs) I think. All right. He's smiling because he thinks I'm going to use him. This is a $20 bill. Now, 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 just turn here a second. Come over here. <laughs> now, come up again. I want to show a point. Come, come all the way up here. For 20 bucks, you can come all the way up here. <laughs> now, now, notice this. Do, do what you did before. No, no, stop a second. That's what we think God does. That's what we think God does. We think God has requirements because if we don't meet the requirements, then, let's see, you're, you're using the wrong hand. Okay, now that one. See, we think the reason we don't have it is we haven't met His requirements. God has certain requirements, and when we meet the requirements, then He's going to give it to us. That's not what that verse says. Thank you. (laughs) Look at what it says. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wind of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He's not talking about what God does there. He's saying, He who doubts is like the wind and the waves driven by the sea and tossed by the wind. Let not that that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, Let not that man think that God will give anything to such a man. This is going to sound real simple, but it's profound and it's basic, and this is where we misunderstand something. The reason I did this with Brendan is the very essence of a gift is there's two parts to a gift. This is basic law I'm teaching you now. There has to be a giver who, it's called a donative intent, a, who intends and is able to give it. So you have to have it before you can give it but we know God has it. So the donor, the giver, has to first of all give. But as a principle of law that that gift does not belong to you until you receive it. So this verse is saying that when we doubt, when we don't stand solidly in faith and we doubt, we become unstable. And that instability makes it impossible for us to receive what God's already given. When I was growing up, my, not, not when I was growing up, my mother still has a place in, the, in a, a cottage in the shore of Maine. But I was growing up, there was a Coast Guard station next to it. And one of the things I love to see as a as a boy is they had an exercise known as with the breeches buoy, where they had the, uh, a yard arm set up there and they would shoot a, a rope up with a cannon, and then they had a seat and they used this f- at sea to transport transfer someone from one ship to another ship. And You may have seen that in some old movies. So they would they would they would have a, a, a some kind of a gun that would shoot out like a flare gun, except it wasn't flares, shoot this rope out from one ship to the other. Now the ships are, you know, they're out at sea moving, and the sea's going like this. And they shoot this rope over and they would fasten the rope on the other side and they had this this basket that they would put somebody in and they'd pull it from one side to the other. And so what what the the ship that has the soldier or the sailor is giving that sailor to the other ship. So that not only do they have to give him, but the other ship has to be able to receive him. But if the waves are too high and the wind is blowing too hard, that other ship won't be able to receive him even though the first ship is prepared and willing and ready to give him. That's the image here. Because when we doubt... We become unstable, and we're like a boat in the sea that the wind is blowing back and forth. And by moving back and forth, he talks then in the next verse about don't let a a double mind because you become a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, and that that creates this image of going back and forth. Back and forth. Yes, God's going to take care of me. Yeah, but look at the bill. Yes, God's going to do this, but I don't feel this way. Yes, God does this. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Yes, but creates an instability which makes it impossible for us to receive something that God's already given. And so James is teaching us here this really simple principle that when God gives something, the way we receive it Is by faith. That's how you were saved. Your salvation was a gift. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace we were saved through faith. Faith is the means by which you receive something God gave to you out of His grace. The grace was God's heart and desire to give to you forgiveness of your sins but it took your faith to receive that free gift. Faith's not complicated. It's just believing it's yours enough, as Brendan did, to come get it. That's all it is. It's believing it's real enough to come get it. But if you don't believe it's real and you don't believe it's yours, you won't go get it. Or if you believe you're so unworthy, you won't go get it. This is not complicated. It's so simple. But we overcomplicate it because you exercise this principle every day of your life. You believe something's yours enough to receive it. The greatest example, one of the greatest examples is fast food restaurants. I don't want to fully call them restaurants, but, you know, fast food places, where you go to one window and they tell you how much money to give them. You part with your $20 bill, and they say, Go to window number two, and your food will be there. Well, the only reason you parted with your $20 bill is you believe (laughs) what that little person with this funny hat on and this weird uniform, the pimples on their face. (laughs) Nothing wrong, I'm just saying, uh, there's nothing because we all have to grow through that stage of life, but we're take their word sometimes it's on a speaker you can't even see who you're talking to and you give them your $20 and you drive up to the next window fully expecting that when that window goes like that they're going to hand you a bag that has everything you gave your $20 for that's faith So the principle here is that in order to receive anything that God freely gives you, we receive it by faith. That includes his love. Ephesians chapter 3, part of Paul's prayer is that he would strengthen them, that Christ would be formed in them by faith. So the way we're talking about how do you receive this gift of love that we've been talking about, we sat in here and just basked in just the, 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 the sense of that love last week and the week before because we've dwelled on, we've really meditated together on how much God loves you and how much God loves me. But have you noticed that after you left church, that feeling of his love kind of faded away? You may not have made it to the car. You may not have made it home. Your dear spouse may have said something to you and the feeling of God's deep and intense love (laughs) just kind of (laughs) went away and you went back into what you were when you came. You notice it just kind of can like that. Well, we want to come to the place where it doesn't just away, where we become rooted. See, that's because we weren't rooted and grounded in it. We, we smell the, the beautiful aroma of the gardenias we talked about last week, but that's somebody else's plant. It's the rooting and grounding of our lives in his life so that that fragrance is produced through us. The Bible talks about the fragrance of Christ. The fragrance of Christ comes out through you, but what comes out through you is what you're rooted and grounded in. But we're going to talk about how do we become rooted and grounded in this love. Amen. Well, the first thing is to realize it has to be by faith. So we're going to look at, although we've had this is faith Christian center, I do not assume, nor do I know in my own life, that I fully understand everything about faith. And even if I do, I need to be put in remembrance of these things again. Because the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. So if you're being moved by what you see, you're walking by sight and not by faith. doesn't mean you don't see things. They don't move you if you're walking by faith. What moves you is what your confidence is in. I'm going to say that again. What moves you is what your confidence is in. And if the circumstances of this world right now are moving you, then your confidence is not in yet fully in God. You're walking by what you see and not by faith in what God says. So we're going to take faith apart again. We've done this before, but it fits right in here. So go with me now to Romans chapter 4. This is just basic stuff. But this is a good time to go over basic stuff like this. Just to be reminded of things we already know. We're starting in verse 17. Now the context here is Paul has started in the first three chapters by explaining to them that there are two ways to get to heaven. Anybody interested in going to heaven? God's watching, you know. There's six of you. All right, you see that? The rest of them don't care about it. <laughs> no, that's not true. He says there's two ways. One is by your good deeds and how good you are. The problem with that is God's standard is Him. What well, standard anyway is Him. In order to get into heaven, you have to be as holy as God is. And there's two ways you can do that. You can do that by the way you live your own life. The problem is you have to be perfect because He's perfect. Well, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to realize there's no way you're going to do that because it's perfect not one day all the time. And since we've already blown it once at least, that disqualifies all of us. That's in Romans chapter 3. The second way is the way God intended for it to work and the way He knows it only works, and that's receiving it as a free gift. He gives to you His righteousness. He gives to you His righteousness. He gives to you. He gives. That means it's a gift. And what have we learned about gifts? They have to be received by faith. So God says, here's what I've done. I've sent my son, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins. But that doesn't do anything for me. That's the giving of the gift. That gift only does anything for me once I receive that gift. That's what coming to Christ is about. And when I come to him, what I'm doing is I am choosing, because faith is an act of your will. I am choosing to believe that he paid for my sins on that cross and gave to me his righteousness. Why? Because Second Corinthians five twenty-one says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus, He didn't just clean you up, Amen. buff out the, the you know the scratches, and paint the, the the you know the parts that had gotten damaged, and just you know you know pull the dents out and set you because that's He just made you back where you were before. He literally gave you His righteousness. That means when you come to God, you're coming wearing His righteousness, not yours. I used to have trouble really getting into prayer because I spent the first 10 or 15 minutes telling God everything I'd done wrong until i read a book about somebody else that did that and said they could never have confidence. But about that point, whatever confidence I had before I started was gone. God, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I should be trying harder at this. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Blah 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 As if God doesn't know any of that. And by the time I finished all of those things I wasn't doing, I had no confidence that He was going to hear me. I wouldn't. I don't know why He would. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, come boldly to the throne of grace. The Bible says we have an open access to His throne, free and open access to His throne. Why? Because He's given us His righteousness. I was trying to come to Him in my righteousness, and I was looking at it and say, you know, I didn't do it so well yesterday so I don't have much confidence to come to you. But I don't come in my righteousness anymore. See, I put on His righteousness. So I come to Him. Listen to me. I can I come to the Father as if it's Jesus coming to Him because I've been given His righteousness. Now, that the Bible says I've been grafted into Him. I've been joined to Him. I'm one with Him. So when I come to Him, He comes to Him. So when God looks at you, He sees Jesus because He gave you His righteousness. Now the question is, have you received that gift or are you trying to earn it? Have you received that gift of His righteousness or are you trying to earn it? Well, what about good works? Well, He goes on and said, we've been saved by grace unto. But you can't truly do those good works God's way until you're rooted and grounded in that love because you're going to produce your fruit. Maybe nice fruit, but it's not His fruit. So this gift of righteousness, that's what Paul talks about in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4 talks about how we receive that gift and operate in that gift. So it talks about the faith of the father Abraham. And remember Abraham. Abraham was the man that God chose out of a land that worshipped the moon. God appeared to him and said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to make you. Not I discovered you are. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And isn't it interesting when God spoke that to him, not only did Abraham and Sarah have no children, and that wasn't his name yet then, but not only did they have no children, she was barren and they were too old. So God spoke something to him There was a physical, natural impossibility. God loves those things. Oh, he loves impossibilities. He loves them. Why? Because he gets all the credit. There's no way. See, when you've run out, you hit that situation that is utterly impossible. That's when you give up. Now God can work. Many of us are in God's way. We're trying to clean it up and then have God come polish what we cleaned up. We're trying to show Him what we can do. He knows what you can do. (laughs) Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. In the Greek, that word means no thing. (laughs) Nothing. Not nice try, not 2%, nothing. So even the fruit that gets produced in our life, he produces it through us. So we have to get out of the way. And so God speaks to Abram. Abram can only think of one child. He says, God, I, you know, what am I going to do? I don't, you're talking about a multi, you know, multitude of, of nations and I don't have a child. God says... Lie down. Now, look at the stars. Amen. Now, you've heard me tell this before. If you've ever, I've been out in the desert at night, on a clear night. And you lay down on the hood of the car, not on the, the hood of the car. And you look up and it's like, ah, ah, It just takes your breath away, the multitude of the stars. And he had him out there doing that. He's dreaming. See, God has to get you dreaming about something else sometimes before he teaches you the principle because our minds think too small. So, wow. He says, wow, look at the number of the stars. And God says, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And Abraham can't get over, I don't have one. Because Abraham was only looking at what he could do. God was only looking at what he could do. So God makes a promise to Abram: I have made you, Genesis 17. Behold, I have, listen to the tense, I have. What tense is that? That's the same people that knew one and one is two. (laughs) It's past tense. That means it's already been done. God speaks. We're going to see that in a minute. God speaks now as if what he says now is already done because in the mind of God, it's done now. And it's a fact. If God says it, it's a fact. And that's the background. Now we're going to go to verse 17. And this is, Paul is going over this story and telling us the principle here. But in this is how faith works. Verse 16, let's go to verse 16. Therefore it is by faith that it might be accordance to grace so that the promise may be sure or certain to all the seed. In other words, it is by faith, because that's how you receive the gift of grace. That's what we were just talking about a few minutes earlier. Not only to those who are of the law, those are the ones that are earning it, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Here we go, verse 17. Therefore, as it is written, I have made you a father of Of many nations. The first element in faith is there has to be a promise from God. Because unless God promises it, He's not going to do it. But when you have a promise from God, it's a fact, it's done. As it is written, A father of many nations have I already made you. At that point, He had nothing and no prospect by His natural understanding of having a child. But the difference was now God said, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many. So he has the promise of God. So faith starts with what God says. Just like your faith that you were going to get your cheeseburgers, fries and a Coke at the second window is because you believed what that person in the first window said. If you looked at them and you said, "Mm, I know this person, I can't trust them, you wouldn't have given them your $20 bill, would you? So you gave them a $20 bill because you, listen to me, you believed what they Said. said. They said, go to the second window and you'll pick up your order. That was the word they gave you. And you believed them, and the proof of it is, you let go of your $20 bill and you went to the second window. Let's suppose, and some of you are in this situation, you've been out of a job for a while and you, you get a phone call and somebody that had your resume for six months ago says, you know, come down and interview with me. So you go down there and they, they, they look at you and they said, I'm going to hire you. You're going to start Monday and this is the salary you're going to make and it's twice what you were making before. Whoa. What do you do? You get in the car, get in your cell phone and "How says, honey, guess what? I have, I have a job. And you get home and you start planning what bills you're now going to be able to pay off because you know what that first check is going to be. You're already planning how you're going to spend it. And you can call them and say, now I told you, you wait, be patient. But I now have a job. I can give you $100 next week. I can pay this off. You're now giving your word out. And you don't have any money yet. You're excited. You may have been going out to dinner. You're doing all these things because you got the word of some cigar-smoking, unbelieving degenerate who told you, I'm going to pay you this much money starting next week. Why? Because you believed what they said. But our Heavenly Father who hangs and holds the stars and the moons in the sky with his words of his mouth, who creates every breath that you breathe, who cannot lie, says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not let you utterly be cast down. I will supply your needs according to my riches and glory. We run around complaining we're going to go broke. When we trust the teenager and the McDonald's window, and the cigar-smoking employer's word more. It starts with your trust in the word of the person who spoke it to you. We, we, you've heard quoted, we teach, you know, you know Mark 11, 23 and 24, Whatsoever of things you desire when you pray, believe you receive them, you shall have them. S- speak unto this mountain. But the verse before is the crucial one. Verse 22, have faith in God. Faith is not something you have or do. It is the person, it's the the validity of the word that's given to you. So it starts, you ought to be able, when you're trusting God for something, you ought to be able to tell me what is the promise that you're trusting because that promise is a word God's given to you. So how do I know it applies to me? Write down this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I'll tell you what it says. It says that the secret things belong to the Lord. Now, those things he doesn't tell us, they're his. But the things revealed belong to us. If it's revealed, it's yours. He doesn't put a promise in the book to tease you. It's for you, personally. And if you don't believe it, it's hard to receive it. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. That's the promise. Let's keep going. In the presence of the sight of him whom he believed, even God, now he's going to talk about what God's like. He's not going to tell you why, why we can trust the, he could trust the God who told him that I've made you a father of many nations. Here's why who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things which do not exist. So he's talking a little bit about why, why could Abraham trust this God? Keep in mind what God said. As far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations and they're too old to have the first child and she's barren. But the God that said that, that's what he's talking about now. Why, have faith? why Abraham had faith in that God? Because the God that said that has the ability to raise the dead. The best that man can do, the best medicine, the best technical, we can't do that. Only the power of God can do that. And Paul says the God that made that promise, Abraham knew, was a God that can raise the dead. Take something dead and bring life to it. Take a dead womb in a woman that was already too old and bring life into that womb. Take the loins of that man that were too old and bring life into that womb. But it gets better. Not only can this God take something that already existed and died and bring it back into existence but he can take something that's never existed before and just with the words of his mouth cause it to come into existence. If you go study Hebrews 11 talking about faith, it talks about the fact that the worlds were framed, not by a good construction crew, but they were framed by the words of God Earlier in Hebrews it says, and it's all still held together by the word of His power. Not the power of His words. The word of His power. Everything that's out there in existence is still held together by the power of those initial words. Let there be. And We're talking about, can I, how can I evaluate whether I can trust His word? That's the word we're talking about. The one whose words cannot be denied. The only thing God ever created that can disobey His word is us. Everything else obeys His word. That's why when Jesus stood on the bow of the ship and said, peace, be still, what happened? The wind stopped and the waves calmed down. Why? They have no choice. Because that same word created them. All of nature, all of existence is under the authority of His Word. We're the only ones that aren't because He gave us a free will. Paul saying, the reason he could trust that Word, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations, is because the one who spoke those words Spoke things into existence before that never. In other words, we're going to get on to that. We might not get there today. Let's we'll get moving on. This is good stuff. All right, verse eighteen. Now that's that's what God said. But now this is where we. Now we're going to go to where we live. We have what God said. So you read your Bible in the morning or you come to church and you read a promise or hear a great message on faith or, God, or healing or whatever it is. You now have got what God said. Now you've got, you got to deal with what, you, now you got to deal with the circumstances that are out there. See, so uh, uh, Abraham had this wonderful God moment when God speaks it to him, but God wasn't whispering in his ear 24 hours a day. Don't, don't, forget, a don't forget, I said you're a father of many nations. Don't forget, I said you're a father of many nations. Don't forget, I said you're a father. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Don't forget. Now Abraham had to do something. He had the promise, but now the battle starts because his body speaks to him. And Sarah's body spoke to him every time he opened his eyes. She didn't look like she was childbearing anymore, they looked old. I know this so well in New American Standard that if I don't look at this, I'm going to quote it from there. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed. In other words, against all hope, he still believed in hope. We don't have time to go over there this morning, but if you look in Hebrews 11:1, 1, which defines faith, it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you don't have hope, There's nothing for your faith to give substance to. The enemy tries to steal your hope. That's why, you know, you start trusting God for something, and as soon as you do, 10 people will come across your path who said they believed God for that and it didn't happen. You're standing in faith for a particular symptom in your body, and all of a sudden you'll find people that you didn't know had that same symptom, and had that disease or whatever, and he comes, you know, I've noticed that pattern in my life to the point that I know it's a trick. I just don't pay attention to it. I'm trying to steal my hope because you have to have hope first. Hope is like the thermostat in your house in the wintertime. You get up in the morning, and it's cold. So what do you do? You go to the thermostat. And you say, oh, my goodness, it's only 60 degrees in here. So you turn the thermostat up to whatever you want. Let's say 68. Now, it's not 68 now just because you turned the thermostat up there, is it? But the thermostat tells the furnace where your hope is. I hope it's going to be 68 in here soon. The thermostat sends a signal to the furnace where the power is, where the ability is to produce the heat, to bring it up to what you hope to. If you don't have a thermostat, you've got all the power in your basement or wherever you have it, but it's not going to do anything because there's no goal that's been set for it. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he, so that he might become. So lo- notice this, order. He believed so that he might become. Three things here: over here, God made the promise. Over here is that promise becoming real in his life, having the promise. God's promise is over there, that promise being real in his life is over here. but between the promise and God and Abraham having it over here, something had to happen in between. He had to believe the promise before he could have what was promised. Some people may not say it, but this becomes our attitude. Well, seeing is believing. No, that's the opposite of what the Bible says. He had to believe first in order to become. Not because it was a requirement that God had, it was necessary to receive the gift that God had already given. Just like Brendan had to believe that that I intended to give him as an example, that $20 bill. He believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. In other words, according, here's the promise again. He had to believe so that he might become what God had already promised him he was going to be. And not being weak in faith, he considered not his own body. You now, some translations out there that says he did consider his own body. It doesn't matter. What he's basically saying is what his body told him had nothing to do with what God promised. And here's where the battle comes. Since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's worm, nor did he waver... That's what James talked about, doubting, wavering. Nor did he waver at the promise of God through unbelief but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Why? Because he was fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to perform. One day in meditating on that, it struck me. Because this is the battle we go through. We find a promise of God. We take our stand on that promise. I know it's true. God's Word says so. We start saying that. We start believing that. We start standing on that promise. And you've got to know as soon as you do that, it's going to get opposed. If it's a symptom in your body, your body's going to start hurting. Very often, the moment you make your stand on God's promises, things get worse, not better in the circumstances. Just look at the story in Exodus. God spoke to Moses and said, I'm delivering my people from Egypt, from bondage. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses stands up boldly. God says, tell Pharaoh to tell you to let his people go. There. There. Pharaoh says, well, if they got time enough to be thinking about being free, then they got time enough to find their own hay to make their own bricks. So he put more pressure on them Pharaoh did. And that's a sign, that's a type of what the enemy does with us. You take your stand on God, and he'll put the pressure on you because he's got to get you to stop trusting the promise. He's got to get you to quit. Because if you don't quit, God's promise will come true because God said so. So he's got to get you back off the promise. So understand what he's after. He's not trying to help you. He's not trying to share the truth with you. He's trying to get you to stand off the promise of God so that he wins. Because if you don't back off the promise of God, God's word will come true. So it dawned on me one day, reading through this, because what we think is oh, but you don't understand, you know, what the, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever been healed of this. What's that got to do with God? Amen. How does that affect God who can raise the dead and call things into existence that have never existed before? I know of people who've had limbs grow out. Amen. I know of people that have been healed where there was no eyeball and then eyeball grew out. I know a gentleman, one of our pastors out on, in Oklahoma, God healed his hearing because his eardrum had been burst, but he still had no eardrum. He had no eardrum, but God had healed him so he could hear with no eardrum. See, God's not limited by whether there's an eardrum or there or not. God's not limited by any circumstances. Once He said something, it will come to pass, and we get moved by all the circumstances around it that are telling us it's not going to come true for you. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become according to what was promised so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own, not his own body. In other words, his body, he looked at his body in his age when he finally got a hold of the promise and says, what does that have to do with God's promise? What does the fact that she's never been able to have a child, that her womb's not barren, that she's too old and I'm too old? What's that got to do with God's promise. See, we look at the circumstances and say, well, how's God going to overcome that? You really think God's up there saying, oh my goodness, I've never dealt with that before. Get the manual out, Jesus. I don't know how we're going to... See if it's in the manual, whether we can overcome this. This is the God that calls things that be not into existence. And that symptom in your body has got him stumped. No, what has him stumped is our double-mindedness. We get over here and say, yeah, I really believe God's going to do it. And then the body cries out, oh, I don't think it's going to happen today. It's not going to come true. And we go back and forth, and that's the double-mindedness. Now, let's bring this to an end for today. We'll probably pick up a little bit next week. We're not talking today about the other promises of God, which are all true too. We're talking about the promises we've been studying for God so loved you. We're talking about the promises that that He wants us rooted and grounded in love. We're talking about the promises that God loves you as much as He loves Jesus. There's a good one to meditate on. That'll cause your mind to go brain freeze. How do I... Receive this gift by faith. <clears throat> Let me tell you what faith doesn't mean, and then we'll pick up on the rest of this next week. Faith is the opposite of feelings. Faith is the opposite of feelings. Second Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, and not by sight. Now, when you drive home, you better drive home by sight. The walking he's talking about there is our walk with God, the things of God, the promises of God. Therefore, you cannot get up tomorrow morning and decide whether God loves you by how you feel. You have to settle for yourself because of God's words, his scriptures. The fact that God loves you so much that he gave his son's life in your place. And as that fact becomes established by faith in your heart, your feelings will begin to change. We're going to pick up next week, and we're going to talk about how to increase your faith. I'm going to show you how to do it, and then I'm going to give you some tools to begin to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today how much you love us. Lord, we may not be feeling it right now, but we accept it as a fact because your word says so. So we come, Lord, to respond to you right now and tell you that we love you. We take your word and your promises that say, Father, that you will give your spirit to reveal to us those things that are freely given to us by you. That's a promise that your spirit's been given to us to reveal to us the things freely given to us by you. And the greatest of those gifts is your love for us. So we ask right now. You said you have not because you ask not. We ask right now. I ask for every one of us here this morning that by your precious spirit, you would pull up from the depths of your heart a revelation of how much you love us personally, each one of us individually in this week ahead. That you would deepen that revelation, Father, that it would become so real to us, Lord, that it would change and transform us, that we would become rooted and grounded in love and therefore come to know together, all of us, with all saints, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. Thank you, Father, that you'll do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us.